0: Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the PR Week. That's PR Week's weekly podcast about everything going on in the worlds of PR and communications. My name is Frank Washcook. I am your guest host for this week with our editorial director, Steve Barrett. out, but We have a terrific guest for you. Uh, That's Brandon Borman. He is the VP of Global Communications at Twitter. Brandon, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: And my guest co-host this week is PR Weeks Diane Bradley, who all of our readers know and who will be walking us through the biggest Marcoms news of the week in just a few minutes. Diana, welcome back to the podcast.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: Yeah. Um, But first, Brandon,
0: I, I think you probably
1: have one of the more interesting jobs in the whole communications industry the whole communications function and I, I i try to walk myself through what it's like leading communications at twitter and i, I just i just imagine that it's this never-ending list of rapidly developing events and, and fires to put out and things that come up that you have to hop on you know urgent emails or, or dms in your case and calls and all of that so so what, what is your normal day like, leading comms at Twitter?
2: Uh, I have never had a boring day at Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> there are times I've prayed for boring days, but they just never seem to come. <laughs> I, look, I, I think you described part of it uh, really well, which is, uh, look, some of this is the fault of the company I work for. I think things happen very rapidly. We're having to respond to things um, very quickly around the world. Um, and that does put, you know, a a particular kind of strain on the team. Um, and so we're always trying to balance that and the need to manage the fire that's going on right now Mm -hmm. with the need to actually invest time and energy in the long-term stuff and the big stories we want to tell and and trying to reach that balance, I think is, has always been challenging. And I think it was, it's gotten um, increasingly challenging over the last, you know, three years, the three years that I've been here.
1: Yeah, it, it sounds like it. And that's something we hear talking to people a lot nowadays is just trying to to balance, you know, this never ending list of work with things you actually have to put a lot of thought into. And and I know one thing about your role is it's a global position. And, you know, you have the news out of Russia this week. I mean, how, how do you take it apart on a country by country basis? Because it feels like there's an endless, endless regulations you have to wrap your brain around.
2: Yeah, I think this really, we try to make it a little easier for ourselves by having clear principles that guide our business around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And having those in place makes it a little bit easier for us then to respond to things that are coming, whether they're coming out of India or Japan or Russia like yesterday, because we we know where our decision making is coming from. Um, And so it gives the comms team a firmer foundation to work from. Right, we're, we're starting at a better point because we just we know how our company addresses these issues. Um, I mean, it is challenging because the, I think especially in the last six months, you've seen um, uh, efforts at government regulation in various ways really increase globally. Um, and so we are trying not only just to address each of those one by one, but to really more effectively explain what we think the internet as a whole needs to look like over the next four to five years. Is is there a
1: fallback position there in that when you say what the internet needs to look back, look, uh, look like over the next four to five years? I mean, do you, how do you explain that to people in a nutshell? Because that's a, that sounds like a very complicated thing to me.
2: It is complicated. I mean, I think we have the advantage of a lot of people have grown up on the internet, so they know what, what an open and free internet is like. And I think what we are trying to make clear is that there is there's very well-intentioned regulation being put forward. And, and it needs to be put forward because there are problems the industry as a whole needs to address and, and government has a role to play there. The problem is some of these regulatory proposals have an unintentional consequence of um, actually forcing companies to make much more aggressive decisions when it comes to taking down content. And, and, and they're based on a belief that the choice really either has to be leave the content up or take it down. And the other consequence is some of these proposals are so demanding from a um, a monetary and headcount perspective that only the largest companies on the internet could actually put them in force. And so what we're trying to make clear is that we need to address these problems. There's absolutely no question, but in doing so we can't have the consequence being we're creating an internet that is solely controlled by gigantic companies, most of them based in Silicon Valley and a handful of large countries. Um, the Internet needs to be global. It needs to be open. It needs to be free. Um, and, and it is it's a it's a concept that is complicated, but I think we are getting better and better at explaining it and, and the consequences of not going in that direction.
1: All right, all right. One thing about your your day to day role, what would you say is the aspect of your job that takes up the most time? I mean, what, what do you have to focus the most on on a day by day basis?
2: I think that's changed. If you'd asked me that question a year ago, I probably would have had a different answer. I think my answer right now is is um, focusing on the team and trying to keep them engaged, um, trying to avoid burnout, but also really encouraging them as individuals to to take time to look at how they're doing and, and do what they need to do to take care of themselves. It, it can be very difficult because we are all on all the time and there's never a moment when there's not news around Twitter to feel like I have permission to step back as a person, um, and so I think I spend most of my time actually trying to get the team to take that time to do self care. Um, otherwise, they're going to burn out, and that's that's of no help to anybody.
1: Sure, sure, of course, and that's yeah, that's something we hear a lot about. Depending on the company, companies seem to be handling it in a lot of different ways. But I can tell you, we hear about in house communications, internal communications, focusing on on wellness comms a lot. Mm-hmm. And it is it is a huge trend going I don't almost said going into twenty twenty one, but as this this year gets well underway, we're just hearing about it so much. And it's interesting to hear about how all these companies do it, but also that they definitely consider it a necessity too. So it is yeah, it is at the top of a lot of people's lists. Um let's get back to something you said a second ago. How has COVID changed what you do I mean are you are you even back to the office have you been back to the office in the past year
2: no we so twitter announced um, not long after the lockdown that we were going to allow people to continue to work remotely um, even after the offices open back up we are not back in the office we have some offices in the asia pacific region that will probably start reopening soon um, we haven't set timelines for instance for our offices in san francisco um so it's look it's changed it's changed how we work quite a bit. I think in in some ways it's been good because we're not all in offices looking at specific individuals. I think it's actually been easier for us to operate as a global team, right? If you're if you're going to have a video call, there's no reason why you shouldn't have your colleagues from other parts of the world on. Um I think it's it's made us actually a bit more efficient in how we run our processes because we don't you know, you don't have the same distractions that you have in the office. But the downside has been Um, and I think you've probably heard this from a lot of people, it's harder to draw the lines between work and personal life. And so sometimes those video calls, you know, and you're trying to be cognizant of your colleagues' time zones happen at nine or ten o'clock at night. And that's not that's not a healthy thing over the long term. Um, so it's I I think there have been absolute upsides to it. I think there the, the the downsides are probably quite understandable. And I think particularly for a comms team, you know, built of a lot of very social people. And I think they're a year on now, people really want to get back and see the people they work with and have those conversations and kind of those moments of ephemeral magic that happen when you're standing in the office and overhearing something. Yeah, for sure. And I, I can tell you, I miss
1: them a lot. I mean, it is, it's is—it's so much when you're working on content, It is, it is so much easier to communicate with somebody sitting a few feet away from you than it is to message them or, or you know, uh, whatever the case is. So how, how has the pandemic changed this types of work that, uh, that you're focused on? And I'm sure part of that is disinformation, but has it changed the specific things that you're focused on every day, um, you know, aside from not being in the office?
2: I think you hit on the biggest one, which is misinformation and disinformation, right? Yeah. I think that that was an area we were already investing in. Um, we had, you know, not long before the pandemic had introduced sort of our first labeling project that was based on manipulated media, where you know, we would put a label on something and link it to outside resources to provide more information. I think the pandemic obviously heightened the necessity for that type of work. And so, uh, over the last year, I think that's an area of focus for the company, but especially for the comms team, that has really taken up a a giant portion of our time. Very understandably, Um, and in in addition to COVID, obviously it was the U.S. election, um, presidential election last year, where that those issues really came to the fore. um, And explaining how we were approaching it, why we were approaching it that way, in some cases, getting into very specific explanations of specific decisions. Um, has has become an increasingly um, large portion of the comms team's work, and some of that is also due to the simple fact you know we're trying very hard to be much more transparent and clear about why we're making the decisions we're making, and and the comms team obviously plays a big role in in doing that. Yeah, and that sort of touches on my my next few questions actually. But of course, this you know
1: twenty twenty wasn't just the the pandemic year; it was the election year, and with those two things combined. I mean, sometimes it's the fire hose of misinfo out there, I mean, sometimes you only have to look at like a trending topic and, and get a little too far into it. But the, there can be so, so much disinformation out there. I mean, it's, it's really overwhelming, and not just on Twitter, on, on all kinds of social media and the internet in general. I, I mean, I, do, do you guys have a strategy for tackling what, what's such an incredible amount of, of things that have to be... Corrected or flagged or whatever the case is.
2: We do, and look, we will never say we've done enough. I mean, there's there's a lot more work that we do need to do. I think labeling has been a core part of it, partially because um, when we first introduced these policies, we put them out for public commentary, and when we heard back, you know, from from people who use the service, from academics, from politicians, from regulators, was. We don't want a private company like Twitter to be saying, this is true, this is false. We want a private company like Twitter to be saying, there's more here you need to be aware of, and here's where you can find it. Um, So the labeling piece is a big part of that. There's a much bigger piece of work going on with the product itself and looking at the incentives and how the product um, and how the algorithms work and how we may be unintentionally uh, encouraging people to, to spread rumors to do things um, that are more outrageous, and so we're taking a lot of, of steps within the product itself to disincentivize that kind of behavior it, it's still it's work that's underway. I think we've seen substantial improvements, but there's clearly space to go. Um, and the only other thing I would say to your point is I actually think it's very important we as a society, not just look at this from the from the social media or the internet platform's perspective. Um, if you think about just on election night, right, where we were labeling tweets, we were blocking tweets, we were, we, you know, we were yeah. putting a ton of information out there. The things that we were taking action on were the same things that were being broadcast live on television news, right? There were mm-hmm. the same things being read by the talking heads, being said in press conferences. This is a much bigger social issue. We know we have a component of responsibility here and we're doing what we can to address it but we do think that there's a bigger need for us to step back as a society and look at this issue across all of our communications channels.
1: Yeah, I, I remember getting, I think, three and a half hours of sleep or so uh, from, from election <laughs> night to like the morning after. But and it's interesting because then, then you guys sort of became a part of the story and that Trump comes out and sort of, you know, prematurely, well, not sort of, he prematurely declares victory and then starts this narrative that we hear for the next two months that that he's essentially been robbed. Uh, And Twitter uh, took action on that, on those on those tweets, on those messages. And then, you know, I would get news alerts, not just that he said it, uh, but about the action that Twitter took. And this and this continues, you know, for the weeks after. So so how did you, you deal? And as part of your job with with media relations, how did you deal with Twitter then becoming Part of the story as a player as
2: well. Well, on the upside, we had a lot of practice going into that night. I think you know, we, we had started that work a Fair few point. months ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, look, what we tried to do is be very clear heading into election night that this is how we're going to address these things, and and we tried to draw some pretty clear lines. You know, you, you couldn't use Twitter to to prematurely declare victory. We had clear standards on on what we would consider to call the election. We weren't going to allow people to use Twitter to intimidate people out of voting, to threaten violence at polling places, et cetera, et cetera. So we tried to be very clear and do that in a broad public way leading into the election. Um we were also clear that you know we were serious about this, and these were the principles we we're going to operate against. So when when those decisions started being made the night of and the weeks following, um what my team did really was just continue to refer back to everything we had said before and say, look, there's nothing to get into in this specific decision. We told you three weeks ago, exactly how we were going to approach this. Here's everything you need to know. Um, We didn't want this to become a minute by minute decision by decision, but decision by decision game where we were constantly trying to explain every little minute change. So I think we were relatively successful with that. Um, it, it, it's always challenging, right? Because t- yeah. Twitter, though we have a huge amount of influence, we're only of a certain size. And so not everybody's going to see everything we say. Not everybody's going to see what we say on the service. They're going to see what they're you know, saying on the TV. So it's it's a battle we're constantly in. Um, and, and trying to get to that stage where people understand our intentions, um, that is a major focus for us. We, just, we think that's a huge problem for tech companies broadly we have a lot of influence um, and there's just very little understanding at a general population level about how we make the decisions we make.
1: But that, that being said, I, I think that, and I remember reading it that night because it was, a, it was a Friday night. I think everybody knows who they were on, you know, January 6th and then <laughs> the events that have folded as the days after can, okay, but when, when you guys took down the, Donald Trump's account, I mean, I I was almost stunned at just just how big of of news it was, um, and and just how much attention it got. And you know, by the way, I I think we can all tell you know he misses you guys by the statements he's put putting out. But when you guys did that, I thought that the statements and the blog posts that Twitter put up really painstakingly described why you were doing it, how what he was tweeting was being picked up by bad actors on the internet in in talking about violence and planning for further violence. So maybe you can take us a little bit behind the scenes in, in, in how you decided to do that, why you decided to do that, and and do you think it worked?
2: Uh, yeah, look, I, I appreciate your perspective on us being clear. I think um, we're we're often accused of being slow on decisions like that. Part, part of the reason we're slow is because we're very thoughtful and deliberate and we understand when we make a decision like that, it will have consequences that reverberate far beyond Twitter itself. Mm-hmm. And so we want to make sure that we're very thorough in our reasoning and very clear in our explanations. Um uh, you know, decisions like that, I, I'm happy to say, are decisions where I am not a decision maker, right? The comms team and our public policy team are not there to weigh in on that ultimate decision and say yes or no, that's right or wrong. We're there after our enforcement teams and our safety policy teams make the call and come to us and say, we're about to do this. Public yeah. policy and comms are there to go then and explain it to everybody. Yeah. Um and I think that's the right dynamic to have, right? We shouldn't be making decisions on that based on whether or not we're going to get good or negative press out of it. Yeah. Um, my my job is then to push on those teams to say, give us more. We need more detail. This is one where the world has got to understand how we got to this conclusion. There, there can't be gray area and questions around this.
1: How much of a heads up in terms of time do you get uh, from those other teams, when when you know, this is a huge decision, you have to make to ban Donald Trump from Twitter. I mean, how do you get a few hours? I mean, how much time do you get?
2: It it really varies, right? It varies, and I don't want to kind of get into that specific case, but I think um, you know we we typically are given sufficient heads up to say, great, let us figure out: is this a thread? Is it a blog post? Who's it's coming from? um that, that said we've certainly had times where a major decision was being made and especially if it was a decision being made on a safety basis where we have said just go do it yeah. we'll come with the explanation later we have to do what's right on the service yeah fair enough
1: fair enough um obviously twitter but the rest of silicon valley i think has been you know big tech and quotes uh, has been in the target of, of mostly people on the right, but some on the left too, uh, since the election and and since everything that came after it. H- how do you make the case that number one, you are trying to get rid of disinformation, whether it's about politics or it's about COVID nineteen or whatever the case is, but that you're trying to be a fair broker as well, and that that you'll do this if it's the left or the right. I mean, how do you how do how do you really? make the case that your call involves the strikes, so to speak.
2: Yeah, look, it, it's a difficult thing, because I think, re- regardless of how we make the case. Um, if you have seen actions taken against things that align with your political beliefs, you, you tend to believe, therefore, there's bias in that decision. Um, I, I will say, you know, and some of this is anecdotal, just <laughs> based on what I get from from the extreme left and the extreme right, that they, they both have similar problems with us. Um, and and I hate to measure it from the negative perspective, but in some ways, maybe that is a sign of some level of impartiality actually coming through in the decision-making. Um, you know, I I go back to helping people understand how we make the decisions we make. Um, I I am unlikely to convince you if you believe we are biased against your political perspective, it's unlikely, no matter how much data I put in front of you that you're going to say, okay, now I believe you. But I may be able to get you to understand how we make those decisions. And then you can make your own conclusions, a more informed conclusion on, okay, I sort of get the logic and how they approach this. I may not agree with the ultimate outcome, but I at least understand now why they got there. Um, and so I think that's that's really what we're aiming for. I don't think we're ever going to be able to convince everybody, anybody that... Um, no, you're you're we're we're not biased against your point of view because it's I think it's just inherent in human beings to see actions taken against something I believe in and think that that person must be biased against that perspective.
1: Just one of your former jobs to ask you about, you worked at Ancestry, which I think yes. is also a fascinating product and and probably a really interesting place to work um talk to me about what that was like and and you know taking something that's so personal to a lot of people and i think i think even more so now than a couple years ago which is you know their their ethnic background and and where they come from uh and telling stories about that as a company you know what what did you guys focus on there
2: it it was it was a fascinating job um Mm -hmm. and i came in when the dna business was really still relatively nascent um and i think you know by the time i left it was the biggest consumer dna business in the world um and i think that we, we were successful in doing that because we what we really focused on was telling personal stories and making this very personal I mean, actually from, from a pr perspective we had the least sexy strategy i've ever heard <laughs> of, which was which was basically like all we want to do is try and make sure that there is a local television broadcaster somewhere in the united states every day revealing their own dna results yeah, um, And we did that because local news and word of mouth and seeing that person's like own emotional response to learning about their family history had such an effect. It immediately got people to go online and start ordering kits. Um, so honing in on that emotional piece was really, really critical. Um, and there were just some amazing stories that came out of it. I think that that company does a lot of work behind the scenes. Um like for instance with, with Georgetown University and helping them find yeah. descendants of slaves. I mean the, the work that company does um that doesn't get the spotlight is just it, it's utterly incredible.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I know they have a genealogist on on staff with the comms team too, which I, I yes. think is is really uh, that that is a really unique role and a really interesting one. Uh did yeah. you did you work on railroad ties or was that a bit
2: after you were gone? That was a bit after me.
1: That's an excellent campaign, though, and they worked with yeah. Robert Shanwick on that. And it's Absolutely. just – it's it's one of those you see the video and you go, this is really important and this, this would have been an important campaign at any point in time, but especially after the past few years, it's, a, yes. it's just a tremendously important thing to look at. Okay, one last thing. You guys have a lot going on at Twitter right <laughs> now. I read, a, I read a story in The Verge the other day about how you're uh, – Supposedly taking on Clubhouse, you're taking on Snap, you're taking on Instagram, you're taking on the nascent newsletter industry, and you're you're doing something called Super Follow. So it, it feels like there's a bit of a transformation going on uh, at Twitter right now. Is that fair?
2: I uh, I think it is fair. I, and look, and it, it's it's we, we've spent the last three years really investing in fixing the infrastructure. We had a lot of tech debt, right? We had a lot of systems that were just out of date. They were hard to build on. Um, a lot of this acceleration you're seeing in the product is because we've addressed those problems. And now we can kind of let the shackles off and say, you know, product team, engineer team, go build the things you've always wanted to build. Um, so it, it's a really exciting time for us. Uh, I think people should expect this product that's been relatively stable for, I don't know, 13 years um, to start looking different in, in the coming years. And and I think a lot of those changes, um, what's important is, you know, you, you mentioned all these companies we're taking on. We view this as our space is the public conversation. And and that public conversation for us for a long time has been text. There's visual elements to that. There's voice elements to that. Anything that is about people communicating with one another in public, we think is a place where Twitter should be. Um, And so, yeah, it it may seem like we're suddenly deciding we're going to compete with the entire world, but we think that the public conversation and making that public conversation better and more accessible, that's the role we play.
1: Right. Right. Really, really interesting, because I think that um, up until now, if you if you had to ask me what what is the biggest product change Twitter made? It was probably going from 140 to, to 280. Right. <laughs> I, I think mean, that's
2: true. I think that's very true.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So listen, we also cover influencers and we cover that whole space of influencer relations and how companies pay them how agencies pay them how they deal with them how they you know stay up nights worrying about what they're going to tweet and, uh, you know what crazy stuff they might do what what are super follows in a nutshell how, how do you what, what's the elevator pitch on super follows
2: yes yeah, so the super follows and it, it's still nascent but i think it, what it was the idea is it'll be a way to bring some monetization for creators to the communities they're building so you know there's a whole host of potential ways this, this could go right you could give people the option to subscribe to you to get additional content beyond your public tweets. I mean, th- there's a lot of ways this can go, but it's it's a way for creators who built these communities around them to start to monetize those on Twitter.
1: Fair enough. How are you defining creators? It can be anybody nowadays, right?
2: Yeah. Look, I think creators is a very broad term. I think if, if you're creating compelling content that people want to interact with and want to have access to, you're you're a creator um and i think that's that's one of the amazing things about this period in history is that these technological these technology platforms have just opened up creativity in a way that had been very closed off and exclusive for centuries and it's it's incredibly exciting to watch
1: yeah for sure for sure Brandon, thanks for this. We're looking forward to your perspective on, on any you. of the new stories we're about to talk about if you'd like to give it. But I'm going to move things over to Diana really quickly to talk about the biggest marketing and communications news of the week. Uh, so, Diana, you're a former resident of the United Kingdom for a couple of years, not to put you in, in too much of a spot <laughs> here. Um, yeah, I lived then, there for eight years. Was it eight years? Yeah. Wow. And you don't have a trace of an accent. So
0: no. Nope. No, I'm not sure how I you pulled that off. I don't believe it's possible to get an English accent uh, if you go there after a certain age. I don't believe okay. Madonna. I don't think <laughs> thing actually happens. Fair enough. Um,
1: <laughs> the Meghan and Harry interview Sunday night, um, Oprah, and and you know one thing that just jumped off the screen to me, and I I have to admit I I watched this on DVR because I I had the NBA All Star game on which. Um, Anyway, my viewing habits aside, but Oprah, you forget because she's not on broadcast every day like she used to be what just what a terrific interviewer she is, and just how much skill she has at doing this, but that aside, okay. how would you rate how the royal family responded to this interview? I know that our our colleagues in london did a did a piece on it and and they got really mixed reviews from PR pros uh, in the UK. And it, it seems like it's a bit of a two-part response and that the Queen put out a statement and now Prince William is out doing doing interviews on his own. But, but what did you make of their response to the Harry and Meghan interview?
0: I thought it was a little disappointing how long they took to make the statement. They waited One and a half days after the initial U.S. broadcast of the interview to respond at all. And then the statement came from the Queen. She said the whole family is saddened to learn the full extent of how challenging the last few years have been for Harry and Meghan. The issues raised, particularly that of race, are concerning. While some recollections may vary, they are taken very seriously and will be addressed by the family privately. Harry, Meghan, and Archie will always be much-loved family members. So, like... I, I don't your know. Your size says <laughs> it
1: all. <laughs> yeah. um, your think, size says it all.
0: I I don't know. It I don't know how genuine it sounds. It it sounds mm-hmm. almost like um you know, forced. Um and the the wording of some recollections may vary. Um I don't know. I think I I I feel like they could have done something That and like also the way that they made the statement like you I think maybe video would have been better. I don't know. There's like a few ways I think they could have done this where it would have seemed a little more like believable, maybe.
2: You know, one, I think it's like it was a classic crisis comms, right? It give the semblance of empathy, but then deny any responsibility.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> but, but I agree on how it was delivered, I think, was just it's out of step with yeah. the moment right because th- there's no way a written statement is going to compete with the the power of of that interview and i think the, the queen and the institution quote unquote missed a bit of an opportunity to try and humanize their side of it
0: definitely they need yeah. more transparency and i feel like this Really didn't help with matters. So,
1: and and you say humanizing, and it's it's just that when when a family keeps getting referred to as an institution, it almost just gives you this cringe to start with, and that it's it's just it's tough to come back from that. Yeah. Um, but but I would imagine somebody in a in a position like yours, where you work on crisis communications, and you know you have a really fast period of time to get back to a crisis, and watching something like this respond with no response from the Royal family for, for almost going on two days and just, just Mm -hmm. thinking, you know, what are they waiting for? Mm -hmm. Um, Let's move on to, we have two UK based stories this week. That's not intentional. So, but uh, Burger King, (laughs) international women's day campaign uh, from the Burger King UK account. Diana, tell us what in the world happened here.
0: What in the world did happen here? So, um, on Monday, Burger King tweeted, Burger King UK tweeted, um, women belong in the kitchen. Um, the tweet was part of a thread about the launch of a scholarship program to help female Burger King employees pursue their culinary dreams. Um, but you know, as we all know, people only read the headline, um, and many people only saw the first tweet in the chain. Um, it obviously appeared condescending and the message got lost in translation. Um, so, following all of that, um, many Twitter users and even KFC Gaming urged Burger King to delete the the tweet. Um, and Burger King did eventually delete the tweet on Monday night, um, and that was due to abusive comments the tweet was getting. Um, and it also tweeted an apology. But something really interesting is that Fernando Macado, who is the global CMO of Burger King Parent Restaurant Brands International spent the day on his personal Twitter account fielding tweets from people criticizing Burger King and him specifically for letting such a campaign run but it's really interesting cuz he's so um he's so uh transparent about the way he communicates he just kind of was on Twitter if you can you can almost follow a timeline of how he changed his mind about deleting because yeah. originally he didn't want to delete the tweet and then um somebody convinced him to tweet it because she she told him about the abuse happening yeah. uh, in the comment section so um yeah it's very interesting and um they said that they've kind of learned from this and doesn't sound like they'll be doing something like this again
1: Brandon, maybe you guys need to hire somebody that just just ask brands if they really think this is a good idea before they <laughs> hit send if that's possible. But I mean, clearly they didn't have bad intentions. It was just it no. was just not really well thought out at all.
2: No, so, I, I think uh, what people what people forget. And I mean, we spend a ton of time on this is that even though tweets are in a thread, individual tweets are going to be seen on their own without any context. And, and it. It's you have to keep that in mind, right? It's easy for people just to to retweet that one tweet, to cut and paste it, you know, put it in a newspaper article, and they're not going to care about the context that you are in your next four tweets.
1: Great, that's a terrific public service announcement for everybody. Really, with <laughs> that's that's Thank what I'm here for. <laughs> yeah, um, Diana, walk us through the Spotify themed resume. This is a really fun idea and a good campaign.
0: Sure. So this isn't really a story about a communications pro per se, but it's an example about how people can promote themselves when looking for a job. Um, So job candidates are getting more creative than simply filling out an application on LinkedIn or sending a plain old resume. Last week, Emily Vu, a college senior at University of California, Irvine, decided to apply for her dream job as a product manager at Spotify by creating a Spotify-themed resume. And the resume resembled a playlist, and it went viral after she shared it on Twitter. And it did get Spotify's attention. I think a day later they responded um, to her tweet, and they said, love to see this. Um, Thanks for your application. You'll hear from our team soon. so, uh, So we'll see if she ends up getting the job, but it definitely got their attention, so. Well done to her on her creativity.
1: Dare I ask you what was on the playlist?
0: <laughs> um, I can't remember off the top of my head. I don't Fair enough. know.
1: We'll come back to it.
0: Yeah, we'll yes. come
1: back to it. It's a great idea, though. You see, you see companies hiring now through these through these unique ways. Whether it's this or you know, we've seen these TikTok interviews that have been yes, recently for social media roles. So it's a cool idea, and good yes. for her on creativity for doing this. Yeah. Um, Okay, Diana, to wrap us up, just give us a very quick rundown because I know we're over time. But just give us a quick rundown on WPP's Q4 and 2020 earnings that came out this week.
0: Sure. Um, WPP reported a weaker performance in its PR arm in the fourth quarter of 2020 when like-for-like revenue in the division declined 4.1%. And that compares to a like-for-like decline of 2.9% in Q3. Um, it left overall revenue for 2020 across the PR division down 4% on 2019. Um, WPP said the trend at its biggest PR agency, BCW, continued to improve. BCW reported Q4 growth in North America. However, H&K strategies and specialist PR were weaker in Q4 due to a strong comparative period in 2019. Full-year operating profit in the PR division was flat. Across- it's a good
1: shout out for b c w though could yeah be, uh, good to hear they're doing well um i think I think as a whole they 'll probably take being down four percent after the year in twenty twenty i I really do I think that the p r firms will will take that. It might not be what they want exactly, but it probably could have been worse is is how they're thinking about it um yeah. one one public service announcement to end the show don't forget everybody. Coming up really quickly next week is the PR Week Awards, the biggest night of the year in PR. Some people would even call it the Oscars of the (laughs) PR industry. And that is coming your way next week. So look out for that. You can still join us. Um, Check out our website and get all the details on how to buy tickets. It's a virtual event this year, of course. Uh, But we will show you how to join us if you visit our website. That's all the time we have. Brandon, thanks so much. I think this is a really fascinating interview. Diana, thanks for joining us. And we will see everybody next week for the next edition of the PR Week.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit prweek.com.